Welcome back to Application Security Weekly. I am your co-host, Matt Alderman, joined by Mike Shima and John Kinsella. I'd like to welcome Sysdig as a new sponsor to Application Security Weekly. Sysdig's container intelligence platform is the first unified approach to monitor and secure containers across the entire software lifecycle. To learn more, please visit securityweekly.com forward slash Sysdig. This is the last week for our 2019 Security Weekly 25 Index Survey. Please go to securityweekly.com and click the survey link to help us understand who's evaluating, using, or formally used any of the Security Weekly 25 companies. The results will be summarized and presented back to all responders in a private webcast. And finally, we've heard from our listeners that they love our content, but the amount of content we distribute can sometimes be a little overwhelming. We've recently released our customizable listener interest list. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe and click the button to join the listener list and let us know your specific interests. We'll use this not only to help us fine tune what topics to bring on the various shows, but also later this year, we'll start to connect those interest lists so that we can send you notifications when new content that you're interested comes out, therefore making it a little easier to consume. All right, gentlemen, let's hit the news. Uh, Mike, why don't you start with uh, the Matrix? The Matrix. Oh, yeah. So we're going. So it's 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 the year of 2019, of course, which means if you do the math, 20 years ago, on uh, what was it, April 4th, I believe, the Matrix came out. And um, so one of the fun things about that, obviously, it was pretty big. Everybody liked to wear black after it. Awesome special effects. But um, there was an also a, a funny, not so funny quote. Not sure exactly how to couch the, the funniness of it. But there's uh, when Trinity and Neo first meet. Um, Neo's like, the Trinity? The one who cracked the IRS D-base, which I guess is hacker slang for databases. Who knows? But um, he basically, uh, basically is like, oh, wait. I thought you were a guy. And Trinity just responds with that knowing nod that 20 years later, I think a lot of women in InfoSec kind of also re uh, recognize most guys usually think that. Yep, very good quote. <laughs> it, it dated ourselves just a little bit. Just a little bit. It's also as 2019, it's the year that Blade Runner is happening as well. So we've kind of like gone in some weird loop of pop culture, cyberpunk futures, I suppose, right now. <laughs> yes. All right. You identified some bugs, um, and, and we have one breach to talk about. Why don't you, you and John can probably run us through the bugs. You guys know these things better than I do. <laughs> sure. Well, there was one that was, um, I guess I'll dive into some bugs around Envoy. So um, Envoy is a cool um, open source a tool that came out of Lyft is basically a way to create a, a, a service mesh, which basically just means a lot of different services can talk to each other very simply. So it's just a kind of an abstraction layer. The things that jumped out for me on this one in, in particular was that it had a directory traversal bug that was literally just a dot dot slash. And you could, and it's just like the, if you're talking about the 90s it's, or the early 2000s, like the old IIS double decode. And the other bug that um, got announced, also in a nice high CVSS score, um, was a null byte injection. So it's basically that percent zero zero inside a URL. 
And what was interesting to me was a little bit just of that, I guess, if we're, if we, since we're kicked off our um, episode this week with a little bit of history, that here is Envoy, um, a tool being created by some very, very smart engineers from Lyft, from Google, a bunch of other areas. And it's just kind of an example that these very classic, very simple vulnerabilities keep getting reintroduced. And I think it's not necessarily because we don't know about it. I mean, we've had, right, 20 years of application security awareness, at least 20 years of people writing books and giving presentations, and yet um, mistakes happen and people are still fallible. And anytime you have something where you're dealing with URLs, make sure you're doing a proper parsing of them. So you're actually dealing with them in, rather than with regexes and trying to pattern match within them. And make sure you get your canonicalization and your parsing and your authorization checks in the right order. So you know that you're turning that percent zero zero into a null character, not necessarily a string terminated null, that your dot dot slash isn't going outside your directory root and uh, so on. So that's one of the areas of that that I thought was pretty cool to talk about. I'm not sure, John, if there's a, a different angle or something else around Envoy for familiar with that one in particular that um you know it you was thought. it was interesting. I saw these when they came out um, last week. There was I think you've got two. I think there was more. There was a few of these came out. I think it's on the open uh, security list. Um, but yeah, these aren't. I, I don't want to call them low hanging fruit, but I think you know in a lot of ways we we've, we've seen developers become more sophisticated and more aware of what's going on over the last decade or two. But at the same time, these are, um, I, I think people get a little more interested and focused on, you know, protecting against SQLi and, and the more sort of the sexy things. But still, yeah, you got to be looking for the basics. And, and this, it's not like these are coming from a, um, a small development team, right? This is from Lyft. These, these guys, you know, they've, they've done some good code and they've open sourced a lot of good stuff, but still, it, it, you know, got to run stuff through some sort of a, scanner tool or something to help you find some of these these um, easy bugs because even on a, a human code review these can be sort of hard to miss if you're not watching closely yeah and i think that's the and that's one of the reasons i kind of wanted to highlight it too is sort of that idea that people are still making mistakes and it's not to beat up on the developers it's just to be mm -hmm. like our our focus shifts over time and we think ah you know the sql injection or cross-site scripting is going to be eternal, or there's, you know, more um, nuanced authorization types of problems. But yeah, you got to deal with the basics. Um, another kind of thing, I guess I'm going to use that as a segue. There was also another interesting um, uh, thing I came across, which was I, I try to avoid the named attacks as much as possible, but this one was called a selfie attack. So I guess millennials are killing TLS 1.3 if we want to make our jokes. But this was in uh, TLS 1.3 had a, a attack that was called selfie that was essentially a way of um, if they're using I'm, if they're trying to establish a session key using a pre-shared key, so sort of an out-of-band agreement to mutually authenticate each other, then it was a way to basically create that mutual authentication to completely break down. Now, that doesn't mean, by no means, does that mean that uh, TLS 1.3, the sky is falling or it's broken. This is probably even kind of a really sort of weird corner case of why is this type of pre-shared key capability in TLS 1.3. So again, I think I wanted to call this one out as sort of a, why can't we just also throw away a lot of stuff we're not using 
and really not worry as much as possible about backwards compatibility, especially if we're trying to do things in a lot of very sensitive crypto um, areas. Let's make it a lot simpler, and that way we don't even have to deal with um, vulnerabilities, even if they may not be super impactful skies falling. Again, people are making mistakes in crypto. Yeah, but isn't the challenge, though, with needing to be backwards compatible, it makes for an easy upgrade path without a lot of retesting. And, and isn't that the reason why we embed some of this old stuff that we may not be using or shouldn't be using into these libraries into the future? Yeah, that's the, it's definitely the tough one. So there, there's that classic case of, you know, how many IE6 browsers are still out there that we want to support? I'm going to try to take it from the uh, the, the opposite end of the spectrum. We've, we've, we've seen like the browser vendors, especially Chrome, for example, really driving forward and saying, we're going to start deprecating SHA-1 certs. We're going to start, you know, we're going to make your search results impacted by your TLS configuration. You know, is are you HTTPS or not? So I think there's some larger ecosystem um, uh, uh, participants that are also driving this. So it's hard to say backwards compatibility can just be, you know, snap our fingers. We don't have to worry about it. But if we have an, an ecosystem that's doing a couple basic things, meaning Auto updates tend to be more often than not. Um, they're also turned on by default, hopefully. And we've also seen like operating system updates are essentially free. You know, software updates are essentially free. So we're moving the cost of security or call it like security behaviors or doing proper like um, hygiene, if you will, for your software. There's no longer, uh, you know, financial costs associated with it. It's more behavioral costs. And I think over time, as we've seen things like we've got uh, mobile devices that tend to have much better upgrade paths than old school desktops. So that's going to be my argument for why we should still try to push forward with being more optimistic and more aggressive on not worrying as much about backwards compatibility without forgetting that, you know, not everybody can afford the latest and greatest iPhone. So there are other compelling reasons why we need to make sure we don't just cut everybody out as we, you know, move forward with these technologies. Yep, I know I get and it. This was, it's, the, it's the business challenge of of yeah. upgrades and just, you know, the testing and all the things that go into that, which is why I think we do it as more of a habit than it is anything else. Yeah. I think yeah John, Facebook's, you want to sort of, Facebook's back looking at news. this from a, a <laughs> is wait, I missed the Facebook one really quickly on this. So this is, there's two interesting things about this to me. One is, I mean, just compared to the Envoy ones we were just talking about, which we'd call, like I said, almost low hanging fruit, not really. But now we're looking at this. This is really sophisticated, actually. I mean, if you look at the TLS protocols, these have been around for a while. You know, people are always banging on because there's so much money being made out of if someone can actually break that, break these protocols or, or break how they're being used. So they're getting a ton of eyes on them from, you know, probably governments and everything else. And still we're able to find weaknesses in them, right? Um, and then every time I see a, a vulnerability announcement come out, one of the things I look at is who found it. So the first thing interesting on this, when we look around, we're just seeing a a BibTech uh, from a, a paper release, right? So this is actually going through an academic uh, um, release process versus like, even though it has a name, usually you'd have your own website, like, you know, some vendor tied to it. But this one's actually going through from an academic point of view between someone at a, um, a researcher at a university, I believe in, in Israel, uh, along with someone at Amazon. So um, interesting to see who's, who's looking at these things and, and what they're able to find. 
Yeah, that's a great point because it's the idea that those those Envoy bugs hopefully should have been shallow. For example, shallow bugs, many people could understand them. But you know, the nuances of crypto, um, there's you know, just having that open source is great. But just I guess reinforcing your point, the type of people and the skills needed, I guess I should say, to be able to find those are fewer and far between. Yeah, so Facebook's back in the news, some more um, user accounts breach. But this was from Facebook's application developers, not from Facebook directly. Not from Facebook directly, yeah. So here is a way, I, you know, let, let's not always throw Facebook under the bus. I wanted to use this as more of that discussion of you are a company, you present a service, you provide data. How do you make sure your app developers, you know, your cons not not your end user consumers, but your developer ecosystem, are using your app in a good way? And I think even in this case, perhaps it, it may have been a little bit more um, um, exaggerated than possible because I think it would the the public data was actually like uh, likes and public comments um, rather than internal leaks. And there were some passwords leaked as well, but there was only, um, I think roughly 22,000 passwords for a particular app. So they weren't actually Facebook passwords, but it's still a great headline in the sense of, here is the reputational explosion around Facebook that says, here's how we're trying some constraints we've tried to put on our data. Here's what developer access has, and there's that far end of the spectrum like Cambridge Analytica, and then this end where it's just somebody essentially scraping publicly available Facebook data and aggregating it, and it's that aggregated data that potentially has a lot of value to people for very different reasons, as well as a lot of potential liability just to say, hey, look, you presented this all, you know, you as Facebook presented this all, it was collected, and now there's misuse of it. Yeah, it's part of that um, supply. It's part of that vendor relationship in in some respects, right? I mean, it's not Facebook directly, but it's 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 their data through another source, which happens to be developing an application on top of Facebook in this particular case. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, let's talk Windows containers, Docker's and, and Docker and Kubernetes, right? Some improvements there. We know, you know, John and I are very familiar with the the relationship that Docker and Microsoft have had over the the past few years, um, as as we work together at Layered Insight. Uh, looks like more improvements with Windows containers and and Docker and, and Kubernetes here. Yeah, I think this is really cool. Um, it, it is funny. I actually, when we were down at um, uh, information security world last week, I had one or two people asking me, uh, and it's something I hadn't thought about yet, but how do we do Active Directory with containers? And I'm like, let's try to add, okay, well, how do you mean? Are you talking about authenticating the application in a container or having that application use your authentication? Or, and, and I think, you know, this, this article sort of um, really helps, uh, you know, really respond to that question. It's like, how do you think about um, are back for who's going to run containers and, and what's going to happen with that in a Kubernetes environment. And the, the Cube guys have already been doing that on the Linux side. There's the, the RBAC system has been coming along in leaps and bounds over the last year or two. But now being able to do this with a, a really an enterprise-grade system like Windows, I think that's going to help a ton of folks. Yeah, and it addresses some of the issues and, and concerns with um, authentication and, and who has access to to do what with containers. Are we seeing a big adoption of Windows containers? John and Mike, have you guys seen more activity there? 
for me, it's not, slow. It's growing, but it's still slow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not, not really. Look, we, we know Azure is growing. Um, you know, it, it been successful moving more of their enterprise accounts into Azure, but are they really using Windows containers as part of yeah. their digital transformation efforts? Or are they still just using the more on the Linux container side? I, that I'm just, I'm always curious that growth. It's, it's so, how would I say it's so just, um, such the massive amount of the market is on the Linux side. Then when we hear use of windows, even in a non-containerized environment, I've got a customer right now who's got their Jenkins masters installed on a Windows server. I'm like, what? Uh, never in a million years would have thought of that before, but hey, it works. So, and that's on the container side, we're starting to see it as as the larger enterprises are starting to adopt this stuff. Um, and they're looking at how do they get their .NET apps in there? You know, uh, Red Hat and those guys had a, a pretty good run for a year or two at .NET Core, but um, Microsoft is, is full, full steam ahead on this stuff. Interesting. Mike, nothing there? No, no, nothing. Yeah. It's just, just not popping up in, in the areas that I'm, that I, that I'm working in. Got it. This next article is interesting. You, you, uh, and you and I, I think agree on this one. We kind of tend to disagree, you know, how to design DevSecOps compliance processes to free up developer resources. It's almost stated the wrong way. <laughs> if we think about it a little <laughs> bit, it's an interesting article where we really, I think we see the opposite, right? Is that DevOps is changing the way we have to think about compliance and security, not really compliance changing the way we think about DevOps per se. Yeah, I think I, I definitely, without being overly like negative, I tend to see security not have, having influenced development that much and that DevOps basically saying, we're going to write some code faster and we're going to adopt whatever we want to call it agile, we want to call it someone else, something else. But here's our CICD pipeline. Hey, security, do you want to come in and take a look at this? And that is sort of how I see like DevOps is radically changing security. And in that case, I think in a better way. Um, and then some of the things like uh, Netflix, for example, since they were like, they dove in already to at the very beginning to be like, we want to be AWS in the cloud. They had some really, you know, strong engineering principles around that. They had that chaos monkey approach and their chaos monkey predated their security monkey. And I just kind of that that's maybe just a little bit of trivia, but I thought saw that in the sense of here's an engineering problem. We want to go dive into it. And by the way, security, you have to actually catch up and make sure that, you know, systems go down, they can come up, but the, that they can also be properly authenticated, identity is strong, authorization is strong, and things like that. And um, so these DevSec, DevSecOps, or just even DevOps principles, I think are the ways that are pulling security in to make it easier on developers, actually, because the, I guess the other thing I want to shout out there is that why don't we bring security to where the developers are? If they're working in that CI/CD pipeline, they've got some touch points. Great. Now let's put our, you know, let's put our Falco into the container rather than making it do something really extra add-on or special that's difficult for the developers to do. Yeah. So this was my whole talk at InfoSec World at the DevSecOps Symposium, which is DevOps has already defined the process. 
Security yeah. and compliance. Sorry, guys, you're not defining the process. The DevOps teams have defined the process. So if you want to effectively address security and compliance, you have to figure out where you fit into their existing process. And the, this was this unifying discussion that I that I presented last Saturday, which is where are those checkpoints? Where do you do source code analysis as part of the check-in and the build process? Where do you do things like vulnerability and compliance checks as part of um, binary checks before that stuff goes to the orchestrators? Where do you put other runtime security components, whether it's in the container or as part of the Kubernetes cluster? That's what I think we really need to be focused on. And that is security really figuring out how they fit into the existing process. I don't think compliance or security can dictate, per se, um, what the DevOps process looks like. Yep. So this is it's, up for it's me. funny because I was covering this a little bit in, in my uh, keynote, keynote down at InfoSec World last week, too. And recently, my thought has changed a little bit on this from the point of view of I'm, I want the security team to go out and really really engage with the rest of the development and the rest of the ops teams. I don't want those fences between these groups, right? And um, to the degree where I start thinking about it is, I think this is a wonderful chance for a security team to start slowly cooking the frog, to use that phrase. So from the point of view of, you know, if, if we went back five years ago and said, hey, we'd like you dev guys or, or the ops teams to start, you know, adding in, um, you know, any of these things we've been talking about, something like Sysdig or something like, uh, you know, Grafana into your source code so we'd start getting more metrics or the ability to have like, you know, a WAF compiled in or all these sort of different things, you would have been laughed out of the room, not a chance. But now you've got the developers coming to us and saying, hey, we're really excited about using containers. We're really excited about serverless. You know, we want to use all these cool things. It's a perfect chance to start, you know, really sort of baking the security tools in there and getting to be able to take data from what those guys are using and start doing correlation and look for patterns and detection. Um, and it's, I don't know, I think it's a really great chance for a, a, in a more legacy companies, but particularly where they're just still getting their foot into this DevOps thing. Um, so I, I, I'm holding out a lot of hope. You know, I, yeah. I agree. The opportunity's definitely there. The, it, it's who's driving it. And I think it's DevOps working closely with security. Um, that makes it happen. And security's got to be open and willing to understand the pipeline and understand where they integrate. I don't think security can dictate to DevOps. And I think that's the mistake a lot of no. security professionals are, are taking right now. Uh, it's more collaborative. Yeah, yeah it has to it, it's definitely got to be collaborative, like, you, like, yeah, like everyone's saying. And the thing, a cool thing that I'd add there is maybe this, maybe one of the reasons that developers are, is being easier to adopt is so much of these abstraction layers are actually getting turned into config files. So now you just can like essentially like lint through some text config files, the YAML or whatever else you want it to be. And it's a lot easier to reason through and tie these pieces together. So um, I think that's also just a helpful thing, both from the security side as well, just to be able to say, what does our network look like? And it's a little bit easier to, you know, visualize mentally, you know, get and build a mental model based on some relationships between config files and your, your uh, containers and how they interact with each other, drop in some key management, drop in some strong identities between services, and you have a compelling story that you can actually write out as some code that rather than like spinning up systems manually, you know, walking through data centers, racking systems, things like that. Yep, agreed. Uh, Mike, you want to cover your uh, ARM assembler? 
Yeah, so this one, I, I, this one looks really cool, and I'm not going to give it justice at the moment because I haven't had time to play with this. But this is from Azaria Labs, has created a basically an in-browser ARM assembler. So for those of you who have gotten out of web application security and want to dive back into actual like, you know, code and 32-bit uh, flags and things like, you know, writing in, in assembly, so to speak, um, you can do so from the comfort of your browser. And I think it's really neat for a couple of reasons. One, it's imminently accessible. Load up the browser. It's a very well-written design um, just uh, and user interface. So kudos to that, to just the, the user experience, because that's one of the things that um, often engineers and, and security tools don't really have good usability design. Uh, but the other thing, too, to be a little bit more forward-looking, Understanding ARM, I think, is a great knowledge to have and skill in the because it's not going away in the sense of IoT devices. Um, who knows if the you know the Apple ecosystem is going to come back to ARM? Um, there's other companies that have said they wanted to switch their servers from you know in, in, in using ARM's processors. So having these low-level um, knowledge and uh, capabilities, I think, is just a great thing to have within your security tool belt. And what I will say here is maybe put an asterisk on this and then we can um, maybe try to get Azari to come on, walk us through a couple areas of, of highlights and um, what how we could really take advantage of a tool like this. Yeah, cool. Yeah, no, it's, it's um, it brought back lots of memories. It's, I've, I've, I've been getting into the ARM space. I haven't touched uh, the assembly side yet, but um, yeah, it's, it's I'm, I've got this in the tab and I can't wait to play with it. Good, good. Now, the last three articles all kind of relate to each other a little bit, right? And that is security testing trends for 2019, containers are still the weakest link, and application security in a serverless world, right? I, I don't think we need to talk about them independently because the three of us, I think we see where the market's going when it comes to AppSec and, and all the challenges we have and, and thinking about what that evolution for the industry will mean. Uh, so I think we can probably cover all three of these in, in one discussion. Which one do you want to dig into first? Well, I just, I think in general, I mean, okay. if we think about the world from an application security perspective, the old way was we had one big piece of code, we throw it on a server and we would run it. I mean, that doesn't exist anymore, right? Yeah. We We've started to break up the app and distribute it into microservices leveraging containers. So containers create a new challenge by themselves. But then we're deploying these containers in not a single server, maybe not even a dedicated server, because now I can run this as a platform as a service, basically, is is in ECS or EKS or even in Fargate as we move. And that impacts a lot of different aspects of application security, I think, in general. Yeah, I think there's because we were kind of in, in the interview earlier, we actually alluding to this, you know, what what is the serverless future look like for us? How much can we see into it? How much, um, you know, instrumentation do we get there? And 
there's still, I think, some some classic problems that we'd still be dealing with, and in, in, such as your third-party libraries. Just what is, you know, you your developers are writing some custom code to build up your, you know, microservice to do proper, you know, to do a very specific dedicated function, but it's also pulling in a bunch of third-party RPMs or, or NPMs or packages, if you're gems and pip, what have you. And um, I'd made a, a note here that just kind of topically, there was a bootstrap SaaS Ruby gem that had a backdoor in it that um, I think it was the backdoor was detected around, it was introduced at the end of March. And I think it was announced either that week or just last week. Um, so not necessarily, I don't, it was supposedly downloaded 28 million times. Those numbers don't necessarily mean how many people were potentially infected where it was used. But I guess the the roundabout way, I'm, my point I'm making here is, it doesn't matter what if we're server or serverless, it's the code that we're running that we have to care about, and whether we're trying to have those um, secure coding to get rid of those, you know, directory traversals or you know, crypto mistakes. There's also all the other code that everyone else wrote that we don't know about or we haven't audited, or at very least, we just want to know, is that running on my system? So just being able to say, hey, is this Ruby gem on my system? And then is this version specifically on my system? Being able to answer that question with confidence and quickly is a great security win. And I think that we have some tooling to be able to do that. But getting that tooling and having that CI/CD pipeline be instrumented in that way so that you actually have something as simple to say but as difficult to do as a app inventory or your dependency graph, um, that's going to be a problem that, that no one has solved in a very good way yet, regardless of the direction of where this AppSec capabilities are going. Yeah, I mean, inventory in general was hard in the days of hardware and third-party software, let alone custom software, right. to your point, right? We have all these embedded libraries and binaries that we're using to build our custom code, and we don't necessarily understand the downstream impacts of the vulnerabilities sitting in those. And so that dependency graph is pretty, I think, pretty huge when we think about a single application and potentially all the distributed components and all the distributed libraries that make up those components, really challenging. That is, and I, I think, think about, too, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I think it was about five or eight years ago when someone started, I think it was on a panel and someone asked me this question about supply chain management and it. it was a cloud security panel. I'm like supply chain management, that's something that like, you know, the ERP guys do with the warehouse. Why am I, what, you know, it took me a while to actually get my head around it. And I think that's really sort of a core portion of what's going on here again is as as these applications become more and more complex, you know, even within your own build cycle, even if it's just within your own data center, right? Like how do you know at, at every single step of the way that, uh, you know, something hasn't been introduced? So I think it's it's quite difficult to do. There's some tools there to, to help with it now from, you know, a signature point of view and, and validation, but there's still uh, a long way to go. Um, so here at, you know, public company doing security, when we come out with a new product, uh, one of the things we have to go through from a legal point of view is, okay, what open source packages were used, what licenses were on them. And in some light, in some languages, that's super simple, right? You know, I've gone through for Go, we were talking about Ruby here and and and, um, and the JavaScript stuff with NPMs. You go back and look at that in some of the, the compiled languages like a C or C++, 
becomes a little more difficult to actually track down that include that you've got is that from an open source package okay where that come from so it's uh it it still you know takes a lot of work in some cases presuming you have the source True. And I know the federal, I, I met with one of the Fed guys down at InfoSec World last week. I think he left before he got there, John. But, you know, they're talking about the software bill of materials, right? Back to the supply chain piece. What is the bill of materials when you build a, a software package? I, they're trying to build some standards around it to make it clearer of what are all the things that are embedded in a piece of code? Because this is the world we're moving to where we are reusing a lot of components and we don't necessarily understand what all those components are. Actually, we should probably try to bring them on the show and at some point talk about the whole challenge and concern around the software bill of materials because I think it's an interesting topic that all of us have to kind of get our arms around as we're building this code. Yeah, I've I've quoted way too many times, Steve, the CEO over at, at Docker, talking about uh, additive collaboration. I'm just looking at containers you get off uh, um, Docker Hub, right? Docker pull, and next thing you've got, your, there's your database. But okay, what was that legitimate one? Is it patched? Is it up to date? And you know, don't it, yeah, it, it can it can take a lot of work to actually keep track of all that. And that's just at the one time, not alone after it's been running for a week or a month. Right, that's true. Um. Mike, back to the, the to similar concept, right? I mean, obviously, mm -hmm. inventory and the third-party supply chain. But what are you seeing also as we move to more containers? What shifts do you have to do with some of your tooling in the in the types of checks that you're doing? Yeah, so it's the idea that um, you, you even if we never had like that app inventory under control, we also don't want to lose control over new stuff. So. The, the tooling needs to, the, I guess there's a couple ways I look at it. One, the tooling, you always want to have visibility, just what is going on. One of the things that like was the idea of like serverless or really short-lived containers is that you just spin them up they, and they, you know, they last for a few minutes, they do their job and then they go down. But if they, if that one had to be compromised, do you have any indicator of that? Um, because it's not so much the, the worry about hackers are getting root on our systems. It's more about what data have they exfiltrated or what credentials have they stolen or compromised that they can reuse or what are their secrets. So there always has to be that visibility. We're just kind of shifting or figuring out where and how to put that visibility into it. And is it come from the cloud's, you know, the cloud provider's tooling? Does it have to come from some open source um, capabilities that we, you know, layer on top, commercial tools, um, and so on? The other thing, um, I guess, you know, as we're talking about changing tooling and how to react to it, is that idea of identity still and trust is still being worked through in reliable ways. So early on in the cloud, everybody was realizing that, oops, we can't really track things by IP address and by host name because IPs change all the time by design now, and IP addresses are no longer like a a solid identifier because who knows what was running on that on Monday might be something different running on on Tuesday. So tying this crypto to identities, whether or not, you know, we actually have a well done PKI story in this day and age, you know, PKI dates back, you know, well over 20 years as people as, as a concept. Maybe now we're getting to the point where we can actually deploy it well and have tooling that says that that's be able to to build a service that can build itself establish some trust that says the source code that I was given, this binary blob that, that I created at the end, 
matches that source code. There was nothing in the supply chain that was maliciously changed or modified along the way. And now that I can attest that I am built without tampering, this is my identity to go forth and talk to other services. And those other services can trust I'm who I say I am. And then they'll open up and say, yes, you can have access to this data. You can have access to this service. You can author, you know, you're authorized to do, uh, you know, these next steps. So that might sound uh, perhaps a little bit high level, um, but I think, you know, the principles of that is where I see a lot of the the uh, the tooling, or I guess the the and the engineering, maybe to use the the stronger term, have to go in that direction. So that reminds yeah, me of a, I was going to say it really quickly, it reminds me of the, that's the application security version of um, .1Q tagging on, on a network switch, right? And so that's been around again for uh, at least the mid-90s, if not earlier. and almost nobody was using .1Q on a switch. So for those who don't know, .1Q allows you to say before a uh, your laptop, when you plug it in, before that actually has any access on the network, uh, you have to go through and authenticate to some sort of server or whatever's necessary, jump through the hoops to say, I'm somebody, then you get permissions and you get added to a VLAN. It's slowly starting to get added now as we've got endpoint services starting to come on and be more common over the last, call it five years. But hopefully that'll happen a little bit quicker on on the AppSec side because I think that's a really the great way to go with a service mesh or something. Interesting uh, networking concepts coming into application provides some value, but not always the old techniques and tools work though. So some concepts can be reapplied. Yeah. Yep. All right, gentlemen, any, anything else? That, that was my list of news for the week. You exhausted my list. It was a pretty good conversation, so I, has, I had some fun talking about it. Yeah, and this is yeah, only our first session together. We only have more. I'd like to thank everybody for joining us, and we'll see you next week on Application Security Weekly. 